The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by James Forsyth. So James, Boris Johnson has had a pretty torrid start to the new year, essentially, uh, with Christmas being a brief respite. But do you think it's now actually slowing down a little bit after he managed to foil this pork pie plot early in the week and the Sue Gray report not yet landed? I think Tory MPs are now waiting for the Sue Gray report, which Boris Johnson let slip at PMQs, is coming next week. And I think that they are resolved to wait until then. I think there are, from what one well-connected, long-serving former minister says to me, you know, he thinks there are about two dozen MPs who are basically ready to write once the report is out almost pretty much what it says. They think they've heard enough, but they think it's important to wait for the report to land. I don't think, though, that that tips you to 54 letters. I think that takes you, by my maths, I think you're bobbing around 40-odd letters at that point. I think if it is worse than that, it could get more interesting. I think one of the things to remember as well is Tory MPs have been very much guided by the reaction they are getting. And I think Tory MPs will be looking to see this weekend whether in their own associations, their own constituencies, you know, the anger has calmed down. One of the people trying to get Tory MPs not to remove Boris Johnson is they keep trying to say, well, people will calm down. But as one Tory MP who was not convinced by that said, yes, the emails have stopped, but you generally tend to write in the first 10 days after something that's happened. That doesn't mean that people have forgiven. Mm. Uh, And I think that also means there is a particular importance on Boris Johnson's apology after the report comes out next week because you know the first apology didn't succeed in drawing a line under it I think it started off well but then became far too legalistic I think the question is whether the report the apology after the report comes out can succeed in doing that I think the danger for the Tory party um, as we were discussing just, just, just before we started recording this podcast Cindy is that this becomes, you know, the, the, as one MP with a kind of foot in both camps said to me, you know, this turns into kind of trench warfare, that you've got a prime minister who won't quit and plot- plotters who won't stop. And this just goes on for ages. I mean, that is, a, that is a question. I think you also, there is an interesting question that about, you know, we know that there is changes to the number 10 operation coming once the report comes out. I think that Boris loyalists in the government are very keen also to see changes to the whip's office. You know, they say, look, you know, who is he called on in this crisis? There is this shadow whipping operation going on. You know, it, it has clearly been more effective. Why don't you make that the the regular whipping operation? Well, what do you mean by shadow whipping versus regular whipping? So essentially what's happened is Boris Johnson has taken various ministers who were on his campaign team in 2019 and said to them, you know, flood the, flood the tea room, find out what's going on for me. And I think the view of Tory MPs is that these people have been more effective 
and are more loyal to Boris Johnson perhaps than some of the whips office. That's interesting. And obviously the whips are in the news today because these allegations that the whips have using been using pretty forceful methods are still ongoing. And Paul Goodman, editor of Conservative Home, has written a pretty punchy piece today saying that, well, this is just what happens. Not that he's condoning it, but that it is quite more common than people might think. Is that is that fair to say in Westminster? So I think there is a mix here, right? So I think if if you had turned up in Westminster in the 1970s, you would find whips using kind of far more physical force than they do today. Physical um, force? Well, you know, classic, you know, you push people up against a wall and tell them which <laughs> lobby you expect them to be in, that kind of thing, right? That clearly went on. I don't think that goes on today. I think that, I think... People knew more about other people in the House of Commons in those days because the Commons sat later into the evening. MPs were, you know, because it was it was designed so that people could do another job as well as be an MP, and people spent less time in their constituencies in those days. You know, there were more kind of late night sessions, more late, and so people knew it, and so it was a different. So people probably knew more of each other's secrets, if you see what I mean, and so that probably led to the inevitable consequences that that leads to. So those things have changed. But I think one thing that is slightly different now is there is probably more pork barrel politics in Britain than that dates back, I think, to the coalition, really, than there has been in the past. And that obviously creates a different dynamic. And you might say, oh, James, this is just a ridiculous Jesuitical distinction between the two things. But I think MPs distinguish between... I mean, MPs think it's legitimate to say... For example, yes, I think it's, you know, I was driving through your constituency the other day and you clearly need a, a bypass. I mean, you know, what, what, why, does, why does the A-Road go through the main town in your constituency? Such, such, such a pity. Oh, no, but look, we must move to the matter at hand. I hear you have some concerns. I mean, they think that is kind of, you know, you might say that is ridiculous to say that that is all right. But I mean, MPs feel that that is, you know, on a legitimate side of the line. What they feel is, illegitimate is you're meant to be getting this if you don't go through the right lobby you you know nice bypass you got there shame if anything happened to it that is not legitimate and i i think the kind of the the buzz in westminster is that some of the whips might have forgotten the importance of subtlety but you know it is it is better to have an aa road atlas on your desk (laughs) and then close it rather than make some of these things explicit i also think there is an important point that james kirkup touches on and you know what i thought i don't know what you thought i thought it was a really excellent blog it's just a generational difference right Mm. i mean this 2019 intake and I think it's been compounded by the fact that they didn't spend that much time in Parliament in their first two years as MPs because of COVID. I think they're just like, why does it work like this? Mm-hmm. And they are more inclined to be kind of local champions rather than just saying, OK, we, we go along with the, the, the party line. And, and I think that is that is a problem. I think that uh, a, a wise a wise person said to me years ago, uh, actually when David Cameron was still Prime Minister, but the Whip's office is caught between Sandhurst and being an HR department. And it hasn't, and, and I think in a way, it still has not worked out which of those it wants to be. It isn't Sandhurst and it isn't an HR department. It, it constantly falls between those two stools. Mm. But do, James, do you think that there is a particular problem here for this particular government when it comes to these whipping allegations, which is that pork barrel politics looks so bad for a government which claims to be levelling up? Uh, I think pork barrel politics 
looks particularly bad if you are basically threatening to punish people's constituents. Yeah. If they don't, but, you know, Tories have published leaflets, I think they did in the Hartlepool by-election, which, which, which came very close to saying... If you vote for this MP, they're more likely to get stuff out of the government than a <laughs> Labour MP, and, yeah. and you know, and I think that they, ha- you know, I think you can see in some of their spending commitments that they they do have a kind of vibe of that, and that that isn't that is something that has been very common in American politics, but it, I think the semi explicit nature of it is unusual in British politics and partly I think that is part of the coalition when there was a lot of horse trading done on stuff you know lots of road upgrades for Cornwall and things like that so I, I but but I think this is but I think I think the other one other effect to be cynical of of these allegations is it will stay the whip's hand at a vital moment for Boris Johnson if you know the day the hours after the Grey Report if ever there was a moment when the whips would wish to be heavy-handed it's that and they I think it will be now much more difficult for them because this this serious allegation is out there and and that 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 will act as a constraint on their behavior Mm, interesting and of course while all of this is happening in Westminster on the border of Ukraine and Russia Russian troops are amassing and America and the UK, it's fair to say, are getting a bit worried about the potential of a Russian invasion. Now, James, the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss has, uh, is in Australia and has warned Russia about potential consequences. And I have to say, she did sound a bit more firm than President Biden did earlier in the week when he said to try to give a similar warning. But do you think that the Britain is doing enough to kind of deter a potential Russia incursion? Well, I think, I think Britain is one of the more forward-leaning members of the Western Alliance. You know, Britain is selling Ukrainians weapons which, which have lethal force in the jargon and sending British troops to train them on it. You know, Britain is clearly one of the more hawkish Western nations. And I think that the calculation in London and Washington is that Russia is deterrable if you make it clear enough that both the sanctions cost will be high enough and that the Ukrainians will be equipped in such a way that this will not be an easy exercise for the Russians if they were to act on it. I think there is something in some ways interesting about Liz Truss being in Australia as she makes these comments because part of what is going on, I think, is that Vladimir Putin sees the Western alliances in particularly the US's desire to kind of pivot to dealing with China. And so he's trying to say, right, Europe is now a secondary theatre for you. So what are you prepared to do in Europe? And I think what Putin is constantly probing to see, you know, okay. So you guys say, and you and you can see this in the debate that's playing out in Washington, where people say, "Look, we have to accept that Europe is now secondary for us mm-hmm. compared to Asia." And so, and then other people say, "No, no, no. U.S. credibility depends on showing if the U.S. cannot deter Russia and the Western alliance cannot deter Russia from invading Ukraine, do you increase the chances of China thinking that it can invade Taiwan?" And so, all of these things join together. And I think that you see as well in the kind of the kind of joint actions between Russia, China and Iran that, you know, that the these three actors that all wish that all wish to kind of um overturn the Western order are and I'm not sure, I think this is kind of there is a big debate in the foreign policy community about how, how much they are. But they are at the very least seeking to capitalize on the fact that if all three of them are acting up, it becomes more of a challenge for the West. 
Yeah, and of course, in two weeks, Putin goes to Beijing to go to the Winter Olympics as one of the only world leaders who were actually invited. And I think I think I'm right in saying that that is one of Vladimir Putin's first trips outside Russia since COVID hit. And so I think we see there the importance that he places on that. And I also think there is a view that uh, he will not act in Ukraine until after those Winter Olympics, that China does not want the event overshadowed and that Putin is therefore holding off on that. And I think also you know, added to the fact that the theory is that Putin was waiting for the ground to be harder, to, to be more tank-friendly, and that because the winter has been milder than expected, but that is not yet the case. But, but I think there is a very interesting debate about how much is Putin doing this to do things like get the Americans to fly to Geneva for talks uh, between uh, the, uh, the Secretary of State Blinken and Foreign Minister Lavrov that you know makes Russia look like a big player on the world stage, and how much is it massing these troops because it really is actually thinking about invading Ukraine. Yeah, and then that's a debate we'll be having with Owen Matthews, who is the Spectator's Russia correspondent on the Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots this week. So do tune in to that tomorrow. Thanks for listening and join us again tomorrow.